0: This is Scott Radley with the Scott Radley Show podcast, and today on the show, we're going to be talking to a Hamilton guy who just finished his 100th marathon. Yes, I know what you're thinking. Your legs are sore just thinking about that. Mine too. Also, Don Robertson, we're going to be chatting about, would you ever consider hiring a sports psychologist as a head coach of a sports team rather than someone who actually knows the sport? That and a whole lot more coming up over the next while here on the Scott Radley Show podcast.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: You know the legend of the marathon, correct? Of where it came from, why it's 26 miles, 385 yards exactly. It's because the first marathon, according to legend, was run by a guy named Pheidippides. And he left, this was in Greece. He ran nonstop, didn't stop for breaks, didn't stop for coffee, nothing like that. He ran from the battlefield in Marathon at the Battle of Marathon all the way to Athens to tell the folks there that the Persians had been defeated. And once he got to Athens, having run two hundred or twenty-six miles, three hundred and eighty-five yards precisely, he announced, "We have won," and then dropped dead. Well, the ending isn't all that great. <laughs> especially when you consider that people still do this stuff. And my next guest has not done it once. He's not done it twice. He's not done it three times. He has run 100 marathons in his life already. His name is Jim Rankin. He joins me now. Jim, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, When you hear the origin of the event, which I'm sure you knew already, it sounds far less inspiring and far less fun.
1: Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thankful that... uh, that, nothing like that has come close to happening to me.
0: Well, have you always been a runner? Because, I mean, 100 marathons for anybody to listen to is is a staggering amount because most of us will never do it. Have you always been doing this?
1: No, in fact, quite the opposite. I, I didn't get into it until I was in my late 30s. And, in fact, I was very opposed to running. I, my wife used to run, and I used to laugh at the fact that she was going out to run in the cold winter. And how I got connected into it was I joined the Y here in Hamilton. And, again, I told them, I want to get fit, but I don't want to run. So don't give me a running program. Um, And after a while, I got to know a number of the guys that changed in the same aisle I did. And they said, Why don't you come out with us for a run? So I I thought, Ah, what the hell? I'll go out and I'll I'll join them. And so it started off with just doing short runs with the crew from Hawaii. And then a bunch of them said, Let's do the 5K and then the 10K and then the half mile or the the, uh, half mile marathon. Um, And so it just built up over time until I ran my first one in Ottawa. And when I ran that one, um, I hadn't properly trained. And, and it turned out to be the worst experience of my life.
0: <laughs> well, let's go back for a second. When you first went out for that first run with the guys at the Y, and I don't know how far you were running there, probably probably went for a few kilometers. Yeah. Did you get back and say, you know what? This, uh, I have been missing this all my life. This is the greatest thing I've ever done.
1: No. <laughs> 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 what, 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 what made the difference was they were a great bunch of guys to run with. And so it was as much social as it was getting exercise. So we got to know each other, and we just traded stories and experiences. So it was that component that kept me connected. Um, Before, after a period of years, it started to hook in that this was a great thing to do in terms of my my health as well as the social piece.
0: Were you someone that – I fully believe that there are people who, for whatever reason – have a physiology that somehow allows them to run better than others. And I don't mean the technique of running, although I think that's certainly a a benefit too for some people, but the the ability just to keep going and to power through and to deal with the pain. Are you someone who's been able to do that even when you weren't feeling great, that you just kept going?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I've really been fortunate because uh, in 35 years or 36 years now that I've been running, uh, I've never had a, an injury that prevented me from going out and doing a run, whether it was a training run or whether it was one of the marathons. Uh, and uh, I noticed that the, the guys that I used to run with now, I think there was about 15 or 16 of us, there's, there's two of us that still are doing any running. <laughs> that to me is a sign of how demanding it can be in, in terms of uh, running into either hip injuries or knee injuries or ankles.
0: Something, something. That's a lot of steps on pavement and on sidewalks and roads and everything else. That's a lot of pounding.
1: It is, but I'm very careful there because I've sort of got a rule that says you run on ground before you run on on pavement, and you run on pavement before you run on cement. So I rarely run on sidewalks. I try and make certain that I run in grassy areas because it just absorbs the, the pounding.
0: You did, as I say, this weekend, you ran your 100th marathon, which is a remarkable achievement. Congratulations for that, because that is that really is something amazing in the Road to Hope Marathon this, uh, here in town. Thanks. So let me dive into your psyche just a little bit, because I know now that you can run. I understand how you got started in running, but you say there's two of you left. Why do you run now? Why bother continuing to run? I guess for fitness partially, but there's lots of things you could do. Why run?
1: Well, I... I really enjoy the marathon. I like the distance. I like the places that I go to. Um, I, I like the camaraderie of the runners. It's just something that's got into my blood. And uh, I look forward to my next run every time I've got one coming up.
0: Which is how often now?
1: Well, it varies. Uh, the most I ever did in any one year was 12. Um huh. In the last three years, and it's only three years ago that I decided that I was going to run the the 100. I had run 74 at the time, and one of my kids said to me, why don't you go for 100? And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, There's no need for me to do that. But as I got thinking about it over the Christmas period, I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a try. And so I did, and I ran a marathon in January, and then I thought, well, maybe I could do one in three weeks. And so I did, and I got another one in, and then I thought, geez, maybe I can do a lot of them this year. And so that year I ended up doing 12. And then in the two years subsequent to that, uh, I made up the 14 that were needed to get me to the 100 level. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: During the break and even up earlier today, I was trying to think of something that I've ever done in my life that would be comparable to that. And there really isn't anything because Jim, the biggest thing, and I think this is where most people get their minds blown when they think about a hundred marathons is I don't care how fit you are. I don't care how much you like running or like the solitude or the competition or the miles or whatever. It hurts. It's got to hurt when you're running.
1: Yeah, it does. Um, But usually not until you know, the, the last five or six kilometers. If if you've trained properly, I mean, and by that I mean ensuring that you start 12 to 16 weeks at least in advance, depending upon the level that you've been running at, you can pretty well guarantee yourself that you won't run into a lot of pain if you do it all until the very end. So when I ran the Road to Hope yesterday, I, I didn't feel... Any pain or discomfort, even when I reached the finish line, and today, you know, I felt uh, sore in places, but I, I still felt I still felt fine overall.
0: You said though that your very first one. What happened to your first one? Because you said that one didn't go so well.
1: No, I didn't train properly. <laughs> I, I didn't estimate the distance properly. I didn't know how you were supposed to take liquid during the course of a run. So I was passing by water stations. I didn't know you had to be careful about the temperature. I mean, all kinds of things that I, I should have known better. I didn't know you are supposed to not wear a new pair of shoes. <laughs> I mean, it was just a nightmare from start to finish.
0: I, I was at the starting line this year for the Around the Bay race. Now, I know the Around the Bay is not a marathon, but it's a long run here in town. And I, I watching so many people run by, even in the first three or 400 meters, already looking like they were one step closer to death, Yes. And you go, you know, there's there's got to be a way to do this for the people who really know what they're doing. And there's an awful lot of people that clearly, Jim, don't know what they're doing.
1: That's true. and I mean, one of the things that you may have been noticing is oftentimes people who haven't run in a lot of organized runs don't understand that you don't want to get swept up with the elite runners when you start <laughs> off. So they end up going out way too fast. So like with Around the Bay, they'll hit five or six kilometers with 25 to go, and they're already gassed.
0: So you mean in my first 30K, I should not try to keep up with the Kenyans?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> well, so you have done this, though. This has taken you around the world now. These 100 marathons has taken yeah. you around the world. Like where? Uh,
1: well, I, I ran one in uh, London, England. Um, it was exciting because we they took us through a lot of the uh, – tourist sites in uh, the London area. We ran through... Uh, Can you enjoy them, uh, though? Can in you... Buckingham Palace, we ran through any number of sites that were there. We were close to the edges of the road, too, and so a lot of the pubs were out in the morning for the run, mm. and people were handing us beer. <laughs> Can we you enjoy along.
0: that, though? Not the beer, uh, the sites? One of the
1: ones I was really proud of internationally was uh, running on the original route uh, from Marathon to Athens, back about... Uh, 12, 13 years ago. Wow. It was the 2,500th anniversary of the first marathon. And, and uh, it just felt overpowering to think that, wow, I was on, on the same route, taking a look at the same scenery out in the country that people saw that far back in time.
0: Do they mention um, Fidipides, though, before they start that race?
1: <laughs> they did the night before, <laughs> <laughs> and they just advise people to take it easy as a result.
0: <laughs> when you're doing London, though, or you've done New York, I know, or Boston or some of these places, when you're doing these ones that are in famous places and you say it was great through the tourist areas, can you actually take that in, though, or are you just focused on this every step in front of you?
1: Uh, at this point, I mean, the last 10 years that I've been running, I'm, I'm focusing on what's happening around me. So I'm not trying to send or or to experience a best time. I haven't had a best time in in 25 years, and I'm not trying for them anymore. But what I do now is, rather than trying to compete against myself to see if I can do better, I am trying to ensure that I arrive in a particular time, but I'm spending time to take a look around. And in Mm -hmm. some cases with some of the runs, like when I did the civic one up north of the Arctic Circle, I just stopped and took in the grandeur of the scenery that I was seeing. It was it was just absolutely amazing.
0: Well, th- that may be for the best, because I did tune in yesterday to watch the last 10 or 12 minutes of the New York Marathon, and the winner finished in two, minutes, uh, two hours, five minutes, and 59 seconds. He ran a marathon in just over two hours, which... I know. For someone, I'm a competitive person, and even though I would, if I was ever to do one, I would want to do what you did and just enjoy. I would find myself being competitive, and I'm looking at that going, who can run a marathon in two hours?
1: I know. It's, it's it's mind-boggling. I mean, I, I heard that, and I, I heard the guy who uh, had set the world record at 201, <laughs> and I thought, I can't even do the half <laughs> in 201. <201." laughs> like, it really is amazing what the human body can do.
0: It, is, uh, it really is, and 100 marathons is a pretty amazing achievement uh, as well for the human body and for, for anybody. But Jim, uh, can, listen, congratulations. It's a remarkable thing you've done. Now, I should ask, are you doing more? You hit your 100. Are you stopping now, or are you keeping going?
1: No, I'm going to start on the next 100 probably in uh, two months or so.
0: Well, enjoy that. Let us know when you hit the 200 mark.
1: <laughs> okay, we will do.
0: That is Jim Rankin, Hamilton guy. Just finished his 100th marathon at the Road to Hope. I'm... I can say with very great confidence that I will never finish my first. So for someone to do a hundred of them, and maybe you're with me, maybe you're saying to yourself, there is no chance I'm ever running a marathon. I understand. I've got you. I got your back on that one. But Jim can run for us. A hundred marathons.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We got a lot of things I want to get to. For the next little while here, Uh, let's start here because the Blue Jays announced today that they have fired, among other people, they fired their hitting coach, Brooke Jacoby, who's been with the team for a few years. And I don't want to talk about the nuances of hitting a baseball, but back in 2015, he was the hitting coach when they were putting up 10 runs a game. Nobody Nobody could get a Blue Jay out. If you threw a fastball, it was a hit or a home run. Tulowitzki was raking, Encarnacion was hitting everything, Donaldson was the MVP, Batista was hitting everything, Ben Revere was here, he was hitting, Russell Martin was hitting everything, Justin Smoke, go right down the list. Everybody was hitting. And that was with the same guy as the batting coach, presumably telling them a lot of the same stuff that he was telling the guys last year when nobody could get a hit to save their life. This tells me, honestly. And you're the guy who's been the coach of a reasonable level of sports. I've done it for kids. But this tells me that the whole coaching thing honestly is completely overblown. There are parts of it that you can have an impact on. But there's so much of coaching that is, I don't know, what is it? If if, if you can be the best coach in the world one year and the worst coach in the world two years later. Mark and, and Mark Trestman, and, and presumably you haven't had a brain injury in the meantime that would change what you're doing. What does that say about coaching?
2: It doesn't say anything about the coaching, I don't think. It's, it's, it's a matter of, of, of the subjects he had to work with. I, I agree with that. So when I look at the batting coach of the Blue Jays getting fired because the players can't hit, but when he had good players, he could teach them all to hit better. But did he? The general, well, I think he had some effect, and some of it is just giving a guy confidence, and having being able to explain to him that, and convincing him he can actually do something he doesn't think he can do, and it's mental. But if he
0: could do that, sorry, if he could do that two years ago to convince him they could do something they didn't think they could do, why could he not do that now? Because he was telling better players. The players he had were performing far better than the players he had this year.
2: I think the general manager should look look in the mirror and say, let me see, is it his fault or is it my fault? I'm to provide the talent. If the guys are good enough, he can take them to the next level. But apparently he can't take guys that aren't capable to another level. And if he does take them to another level, it's still mediocre. Maybe he's taken them from not bad to mediocre, but he's capable of taking good to excellent. So he's capable of moving them all up the ladder a little bit. But some guys you can't take from a guy that shouldn't hardly be in the league to being able to perform like
0: um, um, Donaldson. And I take your point. I think your point is better players, Better players. Better players are going to be performing better with the same level of boosted confidence. Two things. Better players.
2: A coach has got the best players. Looks like the best coach. Because it's hard to screw it up. Cito Gaston could have monkeyed with that lineup a lot and still won. So part of it is being able to manage the talent you've got. But I'm telling you, when you've got
0: better players, you co- everybody thinks you're a lot better coach. Sure it is. The best hockey coaches always have the best goalie. It's a weird coincidence that way. Absolutely. And
2: so I don't, I mean, you know, they fire him. I think it, if, if the truth were known, if you were out having a beer and wings with them when they were talking about this and, and, and the people who run the Blue Jays, it has an awful lot more to do with them putting their stamp on it. And Rodgers obviously has full trust in, in, in what these guys can do. And, well, they should. They, they shouldn't be going out and having a martini going, boy, I think we've screwed this up. And then let them go crazy and do whatever
0: they want. But if coaches have that capacity, and this is, the, again, these are the kinds of things that make me wonder if when you put all these coaches, when teams now have 15 different coaches that, if, a, if he's that good with these good players, that he could take that 2015 team, with good players for sure, but make them... I don't know if you remember back in that 2015 year, those in August and September, when they went through that stretch drive, they always talked about how no pitcher could actually throw a fastball past the Blue Jay. They were, they were hitting so well that you would wait for your curveballs, wait off the sliders, and as soon as there was a fastball, boom, it was gone. They... If he's that good that he could take this team of good players and make them exceptional, where they were scoring 10 runs a game, so he's got that capacity in his arsenal, why would not every team that is a championship contender right now be saying, We got to hire that guy today? Well, they might. I doubt it. Well, he's, he hasn't been hired yet. When Maybe do you by fu- tomorrow. When did he get fired? Uh, this morning. But if he's that good. If he's a guy that could turn great hitters into world class out of this world lights out hitters, the moment he's fired, some team would have it on the radar to say, get him, maybe, sign him.
2: Maybe he wants to be a manager. Although he's got, May, well, just who got knows? Candace a coach, which doesn't mean he won't be won't be a manager. But there's still some, some teams settling in. Some guys have already decided on who their yeah, hitting we'll coach is going to be. But I would suggest to you, anybody that's got a pretty good hitting team and aren't happy with their hitting coach, will hire him.
0: Yeah, I, you I, know, it, it just when I saw that he was fired today, I did think back to 2015. I did think back to that year, the Bautista bat flip year, and all that, and thought about the fact that they were unquestionably the best hitting team in the majors. Their offense was off the charts, and he got all the, not all the credit, he got a lot of the credit for that. He got a lot of the credit for that. And I'm sure he hasn't slipped into a Coleman, forgot everything he taught them. But that seems to be when you fire the guy. So now you've got coming up. So if he was that good, if he was worthy of that kind of credit, you've now got Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming up, who we are told, very few of us have seen him play very much, but we are told is a generational hitter. One of those guys that your team may have... Well, the Blue Jays have probably, from what we're hearing, have never had a hitter like this guy before. They've had some good ones. They've had good ones, but apparently they've never had a hitter like this guy before. If Brooke Jacoby was that good that he was able to turn really good hitters into great hitters, why would you not keep him around then if you've got good hitters coming up? This is what I don't get about the whole coaching thing. It just seems like we have turned coaching into more than it really is. So who have they hired? Nobody yet. They will. They will. It'll but be interesting
2: yet. to see who they've hired or who they plan to hire. I mean, they, they may have a guy that they really, really want, and said, "This is too bad. We think this guy's going to be better for the younger players because they're going younger." Right? He he excelled at making the better, you know, the premier players, which were a little not long in the tooth, but towards the end of their career, the run, they they were closer to the end than the start. And maybe they felt that's what he excelled at and they weren't
0: happy with the progress he had with the kids. This goes back to something I think you and I talked about this some time ago. If it wasn't you, we talked about it with someone else here on the show. I would, If I owned a team or I was the manager of a team, I would try something completely different when it comes to coaching because you've touched on it, that this is so much about confidence. You've got good players. Anyone who's in the majors is a good player. And then you take excellent hitters or whatever. I would be going out and to, to hire my manager or my second in command, I would get a guy who had nothing even to do with the sport, had never played the sport, isn't involved. I would get some sort of sports psychologist, world-class sports psychologist and say, you're now my manager. These guys know how to play the game. My bench coach can put the strategy in. If my job as manager or as coach is simply to boost your confidence and make you believe you can do these kind of things and be in the best mental shape I would hire a sports psychologist and say, "Let's see how this works."
2: Interesting uh, thought. I don't. You're going to have to buy a team to pull that off. But the <clears throat> the thing with baseball is they play 162 games. So it's hard. It would be very difficult, even for a genius sports psychologist, which I have a tendency to think is the, that position is overrated. But I mean, you'd hire him as manager, so we don't agree on that. But the reality is that for 162, I mean, It's a you, lot of different things. Can, can you, you telegi- imagine living with Tony Robbins? <laughs> no,
0: but, no, it would baseball. Scott, would, you're going
2: to be great today. I'm telling you right
0: now. Look, wait a little. Call him. You rate and you do your radio show tonight. He's telling you that every day. Baseball would be a tougher one, but I could. I mean, I could see that if you had a football coach, and you said, "Look, we are going to entrust the offense to the offensive coordinator." The defense to the defensive coordinator, and I am going to be someone who is talking to the guys, getting them ready. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, I I would, I don't know that it would be any worse, and I think it might actually be better. Although, again, you would have to have someone really willing to step out on a limb to try that one. But w- would a sports psychologist potentially not be better than just some old Look, how many bad coaches are there? There's tons of bad coaches They keep getting rehired. They keep getting rehired. I'll take something, they'll try something different. There's a high school coach down in Arkansas, I think he is. He was on this show years ago who never punts. Yeah, guess, Well, that's why they give he you four plays, downs. He plays four down football every time, even on his own 5-yard line. If it's 4th and 10 from his 5, he goes for it. Every the only time he punts is if they are blowing the other team out as a not running up to score mechanism. Courtesy, yeah. And they've won something like three or four state championships. But it took one guy to do something completely out of the box, and other coaches still won't do it because they're scared to death that if it doesn't work, they'll get fired. But it, ta- it would take someone out of the box to say, you know, we're going to hire a, as our coach a guy who's only going to work on their mind as opposed to on strategy or I whatever would, else.
2: I would suggest to you the coaching at all the professional levels now versus 20 years ago has a lot more to do with handling the players rather than teaching the players. I'm sure that the head coach Mike Babcock probably ha- spends more time talk- Finessing. T- talking to players, b- giving them confidence versus being on the ice and showing them how to run a pick play. You know, I don't the, the head coach doesn't do as much strategizing as he used to. He does more people managing. Managing ice time, managing how they're going to handle the ice time, managing the fact
0: they're not killing penalties. Because he can do that because they have so many more now, assistant coaches that
2: specialize. It, it, it does speak to your thought process. Now, uh, coaching in the National Hockey League and the NBA and whatnot, you still have to understand the game. Otherwise, how are the coach, your assistant coaches going to have a conversation with you or are you just basically a mental cheerleader? I, 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 like, I think guys like Babcock are part-time psychologists, and they have to manage that aspect of it, but they also have to understand the game. But
0: see, I, my thing is... you don't, Baseball's a little slower, you so you don't have now, to. You wouldn't now as much because you have so many assistant coaches looking after every specific thing. The NHL teams have a power play coach. They've got a defensive coach. They've got a goalie coach. coach uh, they've got a strength and conditioning coach. They've got a guy in the headset. They've got an eye in the sky. You have enough information that you could have someone who was simply working there as a basically a psychologist with the players that you could leave all the strategy and all the hockey to the assistant coaches to say, that those are your responsibilities, you do that. We've got an offensive coach, we've got a defensive coach, a power play coach, a penalty kill coach, an eye in the sky, a goalie coach, strength coach, whatever coach. Yeah, but, see, but in,
2: in, in hockey, let me speak to hockey because I know it best. The head coach has got to see like he's got guys he's got a coach on the defense and who what the pairings are going to be he's probably got a, f- a forward coach and you're in the middle but the head coach's job in game is to make the determination of who's going well and who isn't he's the guy that flips the lines around ahead of the ahead of the uh, forward coach and so on so hockey's a little bit different i think your your thought process may work better in two sports one would be football because you have time between plays similar to baseball your bench coach can say looking at the charts and everything else and say you got to put
0: Radley up. But why couldn't you assign that responsibility to you, one of your assistant coaches? You're now my guy. You're we, gonna going to be Well, your with bench the co- lines. your, bench coach, your in, bench coach in baseball could probably do that role. Why in, not in hockey? Have an associate coach and say you're going to be doing the lines. I'm wor- I'm going to be talking to the guys on the bench. I'm going to be talking in the intermission. I'm going but you're you're going to handle the lines today. Mostly because I don't think it works if,
2: if your head coach is uh, your psychologist that you're going to hire has got time to sit there when the guys are panting and trying to sort out what they're going to do to give them a little pep talk and say, you know, we, we talked about this this morning in our session, and here's what you're going to have to do. I want you to focus on this. Hockey's such a reactionary sport
0: that I don't see it working. You want to know something else? Again, if we're going to throw thoughts against the wall here that are completely out of the blue... There's no reason that I know of. Maybe there is a reason. Maybe there's a rule that says that he has to be. As far as I know, there's no reason, there's no rule that says a head coach must be on the bench. Your head coach could be in the press box up with the eye in the sky watching on the headset down to one of your guys down below. So, so let's be clear when you said, when we
2: are throwing these crazy ideas out there, <laughs> to be very specific that you're doing that
0: and I'm not agreeing with all of them. See, I think... For a two or three week span, the Dundas Real McCoy should be a test drive vehicle for some of these ideas and see how they would go. Put the head coach up in the press box to see it from a different angle and be connected by a headset so he can actually tell the assistant coaches what to pass along. See, that, even if you take away the psychologist thing, I would like to see a head coach do that. Players all the time, Don, when they have to go to the press box after a game or two, they say, you know, I learned a lot from watching from up there. I was going to say, there's
2: a lot to be said from watching the game from the stands on your own team. And Bernanke and I don't get that option very often. And more often than not, like if we've got a guy that's not playing one night or a guy that we respect, we'll have him come down and talk to us between periods because what you see upstairs versus what you see on the ice is dramatically different should try it sometime. Have your head coach up in the stands and see how it goes. You know, you're a tremendous columnist and an outstanding radio <laughs> announcer. You do a great talk radio show.
0: And how would I be as a hockey coach? And you should stick with that. <laughs> you're listening to the Scott
1: Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Don, we were talking about baseball. Started anyway talking about baseball. Uh, moved on from there. Free agency season opened two days ago. And there are guys who the money that are, is being talked about, that they're going to sign for. Uh, Manny Machado, who got traded from Baltimore to Los Angeles, there are reports, there are rumors that he will get $350, $360 million in a contract. He doesn't even hustle. That was his thing. He wouldn't even hustle. But he's, he's a good hitter and he's a pretty good defensive player. He's going to get 360. Uh, Bryce Harper is going to get 350 or $360 million. There was a time, and I don't want to be petty or jealous or envious or whatever else. There was a time when the beginning of free agent season, I loved it because it's part of the hot stove thing yep. and who's going to go where and who? what team's going to get this guy. And that. I'm having a harder time being excited when I hear that this whole thing is about some guy getting – 300 or 350 million dollars. I remember when the Texas Rangers I think signed Alex Rodriguez 252 million. Yeah, it was obscene, right And that was about was twice what anyone else was yeah. going to pay for it except for his agent fooled everybody and convinced the Rangers that they had to do that Buck up and he, and he
2: went it, and when he by the time it it was a brutal contract when he signed it because it was obscene. And in the middle of it, it seemed very reasonable, and it didn't get bad until it entered its 27th year (laughs) for the Yankees. Well, no, he got an extension on that. And he was seeing Estelle's uh, (laughs) friend, Madonna, I think at the time, which probably put
0: him in the ditch. I... I, (laughs) I, I I was convoluted. No, I, I don't <laughs> I don't have a problem with athletes making money because the owners make money and so why should the athletes not? But there comes a That's point obscene, there though. comes a point when I have a harder time getting excited about it because it's not it doesn't seem to me that this is any more about building a team. I remember back when the Jays were in their World Series yep. time, 92, 93, and I can specifically remember watching the sports news, the one night. And I think it all happened on the same night that the Jays signed Paul Molitor and that was unbelievable news. Uh, you know, they're going to repeat as champions. They signed Paul Molitor and then they signed Dave Stewart. I think it was the same night from from Oakland. And I mean, yeah, they got paid. They didn't come for free. They weren't doing it for philanthropic reasons, but they weren't making $350 million. And so you looked and you said, you know what, they're coming a, because the Blue Jays want great players, but B, because they want to win a championship. If you're going to offer me $350 million, I'll go play for the Class A farm team of whoever that's playing out of downtown Baghdad. I don't care. Put me wherever. The Dur- Bull- or, uh, the Durham Bulls. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll play. Yep. Who cares if I win a championship? And you can't tell me that these guys, if you're going to tell me, I'll tell you what, Manny, We'll give you a 10-year, $360 million contract, or we can give you a 10-year, $200 million contract for a team that will be a contender. You can't tell me he's going to go to the contender. No, he's he going to take the money. Sure he will. Even though I think you can probably get by on $200 million for the rest of your life.
2: It's been said for years and years and years. Um, they all want to play a contender, but they'll play for whoever pays them the most.
0: sure. But by the time you've paid a guy $350 million or $300 million or $250 million, What motivates them? Well, you would argue, I suppose, that. Well, you want to make more in your next contract? Yes, that. I mean, look, David Price could have opted out and tried to get more if he thought more was out there. It was Boston's option, wasn't it? No, it was his option. He could have opted out. And, but he knew that there was not going to be more money than he was. He was making $32 million. Uh, but I, I would think part of the motivation is that you don't want to be completely humiliated. Although, again, if you're being paid $360 million, I mean, what would, what would you do for $360 million? You'd probably, you'd probably run down Main Street playing a tuba buck naked with the majorettes marching behind you for $350 million. Who cares if I'm humiliated? I got $350 bucks. I can buy some ego. I can move to a different country. No one will ever see me again. Well, I can I, buy a country. I can't do that because I can't play the tuba. I don't think that was your point. The point is that it's, <clears throat> I don't know what the motivation is. You say you want to win a championship. I, but what team can pay a guy $300 million and then build a championship team around you? So you're almost by definition saying I'm not going to go to a contender because there's, except for maybe the Yankees and maybe the Dodgers and maybe the Red Sox. There's not another team around that can pay that kind of money and then build a contender. Well, Major League
2: Baseball don't care about balance.
0: Nope. Uh, They get it occasionally. Like Milwaukee did very well this year. Milwaukee was great, and they didn't spend a lot of money. Oakland made the playoffs, and they didn't spend any money.
2: Every once in a while it can happen, and Major League Baseball likely say, well, look what Oakland did. Look what Milwaukee did, and look at what these guys did. The National Hockey League wanted balance. And they wanted financial stability for their teams. And they brought in a salary cap. And whether that's been good for the league or bad for the league, we don't have enough time left tonight to to go through all that. But I can't speak to baseball players, but I don't think they're a whole lot different than hockey players. I don't think there are hardly any guys that play in the National Hockey League that if the most they could make was a million and a half a year, wouldn't play. Sure they would. They'd all play. And if the worst paid guy was making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, they'd all be tickled pink to be making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Or that's probably a bad number, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, because an electrician. Now I got a buddy who owns a company says he's got all kinds of guys make over one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year or over a hundred grand a year. I guess it wasn't some making a hundred. So you know what I mean? There's got to be a big enough distinguish difference, but to play in the best league in the world and be compensated. For a million and a half a year, they'd all do it. If you if, if Don
0: Robertson it. was a top level hockey player and you had an opportunity, someone was going to pay you, they said, listen, Don, you can come to our team for 10 million bucks a year. We'll give you five, six, seven years, whatever it is 10 million bucks a year. or you can go to this other team for 13 million bucks a year, but understand that if you get that 13 million, we're going to have a real hard time building a winner around you. So you'll make 3 million extra a year and you'll make maybe 20 million over the course of your contract, but you're not going to win anything. You're going to have to lose a lot. What would you do? I'm a real team guy. I'd take the money. You'd take the money. Sure. And I think a lot of guys would do
2: that. I mean, I'd like to think that, that, uh, I would be that special. And of course, if I didn't take the money, people think I'm really special, but if I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be any different than anybody else. Well, <clears throat> I'd probably say, you know what? Give me the 13 million and I'll make us good enough myself.
0: See, I'd like to think that I would say I want to win and that 10 million a year is sufficient to more than get by and I can quite live a quite happy life, if, especially if it's a six or seven year deal. And if I have to leave a few million bucks on the table, so be it to get a better team. I would like to think that those guys are still out there we're going to w- find out how many of them are in Toronto. Well, yeah, I, I, I would, can tell you
2: one that's not playing; it's not thinking that way. Nope,
0: for sure. And it, to Pre- me, it's 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 a really interesting thing. And it comes and and baseball. You're right because there's no salary cap, for better or for worse. Because I'm not a fan of the NHL's version of the salary cap. I don't. I'm in favor of a salary cap of sorts. I don't like the NHL's absolute hard cap. Nonetheless, that's not what we're talking about right here. It is. To me, it is a really difficult thing as a fan to be looking at guys like this, and and I again, I don't want to be envious, I don't want to be petty, I don't want to make it all about the money, but it seems that it's all, all about the money. Even when, as I say, Don, no one's no one needs food stamps when you're playing major league baseball, no. and so if you're making twenty million dollars a year, and some mediocre, uh, not mediocre, I mean middle market team will pay you 20 million a year, but you can get 30 million playing for the Yankees. I'd love to believe there are some guys out there who would say, I, you know, 10 years and 20 million a year, I can, I can live okay on that. I'd rather win something, but I don't know how many guys there are like that.
2: I think baseball is different because you can play baseball, um, versus some of the other sports a lot longer. It's not, especially if you're a DH and you're mostly a hitter. You know, if they're going to pay Manny thirty-five million dollars a year or, or forty-five million dollars a year early and end up dwindling him down to a measly twenty million a year later on in his career, but they can still play till they're thirty-seven, 38 years old. They, the, the owners think they can. So when you get in basketball and you get in football and you get in hockey, where it's a contact sport. They don't have the longevity. And the reason I say that is and so that's why a hockey player, if he's getting a five year deal, the money means a lot more because his next deal might he might play for thirteen million and his next contract might be three. Mm-hmm. So the money matters a lot more in a sport where the athletes can't perform at a high level for as long. So you gotta think
0: about your career a little bit. I did grow up in next door one door down from an NHL player and back then in the 70s he was making probably I don't know double double and a half what a person making it as a lawyer or doctor would be making and so yeah your career is short and so people would say okay it makes some sense that a hockey player is making that kind of money even though he's not a lawyer or a doctor it's different but yeah, we get it. You've got maybe a 10 year career, so you've got to make your money now. The difference is now, guys aren't making two or three times what a lawyer or doctor is making. They're making 50, 60, a hundred times what a lawyer or doctor is making. And so whenever a guy says, "Well, I gotta I gotta make sure I look after my family. I'm pretty sure that 20 million dollars a year compared to 30 million, is you're still looking after your family. I mean, you're looking after your family if you do this right, for every generation until your family is obliterated off the face of the earth. You just put you put a million dollars into a fund and say, my great, great, great grandchildren, 70 years from now, 80 years from now, get to open this thing. No one in your family will ever have to work a day in their life ever again. So I'm... When I hear these contracts that are being talked about for the free agency in baseball, that some guy's going to make $350 million, $300 million, maybe more than that, I mean, I love sports. I love pro sports. I like the hot stove stuff. I I just, that, it it has taken something out of it for me.
2: When you have a conversation with a practical person who's not necessarily a sports fan and they sit down and, and, and say... So um, these kids in the leaps are now going to start making ten million dollars a year. Doesn't there seem to be something wrong with Austin Matthews making ten million dollars a year, and the top surgeon at the sick ki- sick kids hospital in Toronto is making six hundred thousand dollars a year? Doesn't in in the world of life and does, I would does say that yes. Put anything into
0: perspective. I would say absolutely yes. The one difference is. That we do live in reality, and Austin Matthews is maybe making ten million dollars a year from the Leafs, but maybe bringing in yep. fifty or sixty million dollars to Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. That's while, what makes it a business, right? While the doctor is saving lives, and you can't put a figure on that, but that's part of the problem. You can't put a figure on that. And until we have, and I'm not advocating for this. This is not what this discussion is about. But until you have a open capitalistic healthcare system where you say you want a heart transplant, all right, that costs you x dollars and you pay it if you want it. When we do that, the doctors will start making money. Like the kind of money that you will see in a in a professional athlete. We're not that's not what we do though.
1: The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.